It's time to take a look at the news of the week. San Francisco Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi has been reelected to her post as House Democrat leader. The 115-year-old Pelosi won the ballot because Democrats said they felt there were still some areas of the country they hadn't alienated. These include the rest area between exits 15 and 16 on Interstate 40 outside Russellville, Arkansas, and the last three rows of the old movie theater in Zanesville, Ohio. Pelosi said she would immediately get to work on issues Americans care about, like whether urinals should be installed in women's bathrooms to accommodate women who are actually men wearing a dress. Dylan Roof, the man accused of murdering nine people at a historic black church in Shelby, North Carolina, has decided to act as his own attorney at his trial. Experts say this proves the truth of the old adage, a man who acts as his own lawyer has a racist psycho killer for a client. Roof is already participating in the jury selection process and says he's looking for jurors who think slaughtering innocent people en masse is A-OK. Those jurors who have been impaneled so far have already been asking the judge some clarifying questions, such as, do we have to sit through the whole trial before we convict him? And is there a slower, more painful version of the death penalty? The new Senate minority leader, Chuck Schumer, says Republican plans to privatize Medicare show the GOP is going to wage a war on seniors. President-elect Donald Trump has said he has no plans to change Medicare, but Schumer says it's still a Republican war on seniors because something, something, something. House Republican leader Paul Ryan said he was disappointed in Schumer's remarks because Republicans had been hoping to begin the war on seniors with a surprise attack, featuring GOP congressmen leaping out from behind trees to steal seniors' canes and push over their wheelchairs. Ryan said that after the federal government lost the war on drugs and the war on poverty, they were hoping this would be an easy one since the enemy would be old people who can't really fight back. Islamic authorities in Morocco say they were shocked by a new segment on a state-owned Moroccan television station that showed women how to use makeup to hide the signs of domestic violence. Local imams flooded the TV station with phone calls in protest. The imams say using makeup is only for hussies and harlots who are trying to lure innocent Muslims into sin with their sweetly smooth cheeks and lusciously round bodies. <laughs> the imam... The imam said any woman found using makeup should be beaten, leading the television station to rerun the original segment. And finally, Anthony Weiner has returned to New York from a more than month-long stint in a Tennessee sex clinic. Weiner says the clinic taught him that sexting underage girls was bad, which surprised him because he'd always thought it was absolutely great. Weiner admits his political career is probably over because there's no place for him in the Democrat Party now that he's no longer a sexual deviant. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. I love that story about Dylan Roof acting as his own attorney. You could just see the judge. You could just see the judge going, you want to act as your own attorney? Go for it, baby. <laughs> it, reminded, it reminded me of the, the guy, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer who got murdered in prison. And people said, how could this happen? And I thought, well, it happened because the murderer came in and said to the guard, excuse me, you're standing my way. I'd like to kill Jeffrey Dahmer. And the guard said, oh, excuse me. Let me step, step back for a minute. It's like a little rough justice going on. 
All right, I don't do this uh, often. In fact, I'll probably never do it again, but I want to give a birthday shout-out to my fan, Dakota Hoddle, who is turning 24 years old today. His his uh, fiance Sarah Mallon, uh, said that this would make her the greatest fiance on earth, which I thought was like, you know, yeah. Uh, Dakota, you are way outchecked. <laughs> so that <laughs> be, be nice because they don't come along that often. All right, it's, it's this, this Christmas season has begun. We are going to talk about God today because, you know, I did this. In, uh, yeah, yeah, we're not, we're going to do it. We'll do it after the people on Facebook go away because they're going to be cast out into the exterior dark where there's great weeping and gnashing of teeth. But you, who are one of the, among the Daily Callerites, who can hear the whole show at the Daily Caller site. Anybody can hear the whole show at the Daily Caller site. The Daily Wire. The Daily Wire. Gosh, sorry about that. <laughs> I was, I was, I've been thinking about what's it? Uh, the, uh, anyone can hear the show at the Daily Wire, but if you want to watch the show, you have to subscribe. Lousy eight bucks a month. Come on. You know, subscribe. So we'll be talking about uh, God because I had this interview with Dave Rubin on the Rubin Report, and I've just been getting, like, hammered. All these people, all these atheists are so upset that I believe in God and, and can explain why. They didn't like that. All right, I have to tell you, we were just talking about this before we came on. I, I have been feeling so jolly, you know, about this political situation. If you had told me, if you had told me a month ago, all right, November 1st, if you had told me that I would be feeling jolly because Donald Trump had been elected president, I would have laughed twice. One, that Donald Trump was going to be elected president, although I knew it was going to be closer than everybody else said. I, I have to give myself that. But but also that I would feel this good about it. I mean, and it's not just me. It's not just me. I'm watching all the guys, Krauthammer, who said he could never vote for Donald Trump, uh, you know, as a matter of ethics. He, he's been saying this is going very well. You know, he, he says, you know, Trump looks like he wants to get stuff done. Jonah Goldberg was on the Fox panel. I, I love Jonah. Jonah is, I think, one of the best political writers out there, just a terrific writer, great sense of humor, really well-informed. And he was saying kind of what I've been saying is like, yeah, can I pick this apart, you know, some of this apart from a conservative point of view? Sure you can, sure you can. I mean, right now, as I speak, I think, Trump is in Indianapolis touting the fact that he saved a 1,000 jobs at the carrier firm, the carrier air conditioning firm. And I, I think what I saw as I was coming on air was that the deal is that they're going to give him uh, 7 million bucks in tax incentives and they'll keep 1,000 a thousand, a thousand, uh, workers there. Big. This is a big victory for Trump. It probably, obviously engineered by Pence, who's the governor, still the governor of Indiana, so he can do this stuff. And, you know, is there a moral hazard to thinking, oh, we're going to do this with all every business? But remember, this is standard operating procedure. Every state gives breaks to businesses to induce businesses to come. Texas comes to California and says, you know, you're paying these tremendous taxes. If you come to Texas, you won't be doing that. We'll, maybe we'll give you New York. We'll say we'll give you 10 years where you don't have to pay any taxes, and that brings jobs into the state, and then they start to tax them. There's, all, there's always these things going on. But, it's, but as I said yesterday, this is a symbol of a guy who means to move forward. And watching, by the way, watching the White House get upset about this was hilarious. Here's Josh Earnest, the presidential spokesman, saying, well, I guess it's all right, but not as good as us. The early indications are that this is good news, and uh, obviously we'd welcome that good news. Uh, I know that the president-elect has uh, uh, indicated that uh, he deserves credit for, uh, for that announcement, and uh, I guess what I would uh, observe is that if he is uh, successful in doing that um, 804 more times, then he will meet the record of manufacturing jobs that were created in the United States while President Obama was in office. There were 805,000 manufacturing jobs that weren't just protected or saved, but actually created while President Obama was in office. So 
President Obama has set a high standard, and um, President-elect Trump can meet that standard if uh, this uh, carrier deal uh, is completed in the way that he expects that it will be. Uh, and if he does that 804 more times, then uh, he will have matched the standard established by President Obama, at least when it comes to manufacturing jobs. The one difference would be that um, the President-elect is talking about um, uh, protecting jobs, and the metric I'm using is actually creating jobs. Uh, if we go to protecting jobs, there are uh, more than a million jobs uh, in the industrial Midwest that were saved uh, when uh, President Obama made the decision to rescue the American auto industry. Here's from the Washington Times with a hat tip to Deborah Hine at PJ Media. Uh, according to manufacturing employment data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, since Mr. Obama took office in 2009, the U.S. has lost about 303,000 303, manufacturing jobs. I'm not sure how one even spins that into a positive, says the writer. Moreover, in his 2012 re-election campaign, Mr. Obama promised to create one million new manufacturing jobs by the end of this year and said he was working to double American exports over the next five years, but statistics show he's fallen short on both measures. Between the time he made the promise and October 2016, the most recent data available, the number of manufacturing jobs only rose by 297,000, far below the one million jobs he promised. So it's all untrue. And remember all also, that this, you know, we, we always made fun of Obama for saying he saved jobs because there's no way to measure that. There is a way to measure this. They were, Carrier was going to move 2,000 jobs to Mexico. It's now going to only move 1,000 jobs. So, yes, he did save them. But also, remember how Obama used stories like this to spend $800 million in stimulus that went basically to the people in the stock, you know, buying stocks. It went to it went to the rich. It didn't go to anybody, uh, you know, that we know. It just it bolstered the, uh, it bolstered the stock market. So, look, this is a symbol. You know, is it fraud? Is this the way we want him to go forward? No. Do we want him going around just giving tax deals to businesses? No, of course not. That's not the point. But as a symbol, as a symbol that the guy has turned his mind from who's using which bathroom, which is so offensive to people. Not, it's not even offensive to people because they dislike transgender people. That's not the point. The point is there's serious stuff going on, and he's telling them that he is going to attend to this serious stuff. And the thing that is beneath this that is so encouraging, and the reason I'm so jolly, is it speaks to the fact that it turns out that Trump, this wild man, this guy who insults people, this guy who talks about crazy stuff like Ted Cruz's father killing Kennedy or being associated with Lee Harvey Oswald, all this crazy stuff, he has a, he actually has a plan. He has now uh, appointed this guy, Stephen Mnuchin, Mnuchin? Stephen Mnuchin, who uh, has this to say about the economy. We represent All right, sorry, that was Steve Munchkin. That was a, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's, he's, a, he's a union guy, you know? It's like from the Lollipop Guild. Oh, okay. But Steve Mnuchin is from Goldman Sachs. And yes, you know, they demonize Goldman Sachs. And, and Goldman Sachs also has a, is like just stacked with these Keynesian leftists. I mean, that's the other thing. They, they make a fortune off capitalism and then tell us that it's all right for, for us to go into, uh, into debt ceaselessly. But listen to what he's saying it's important because it shows that Trump is not entirely the wild man we thought. This has been an, administ an administration for the last eight years where we haven't had 
enough growth. Our number one priority is going to be tax reform. We think that by lowering the corporate tax rate, we're going to make U.S. corporations incredibly competitive and create enormous amounts of money that comes back onshore and creates jobs. Let's talk about how you do that, Stephen, uh, because of obviously you followed Trump throughout the entire campaign process. In terms of your first steps during this transition period and first steps in January, how do you get that tax reform moving? Well, the good thing about this is Wilbur and I have worked together on the economic plan with the president-elect throughout the campaign. We were integral to both economic speeches, the one in Detroit as well as the one in New York. And we have a plan. We've been working with the policy group. We're already sitting down and discussing this with Congress. And this is going to be something that happens absolutely within the first 90 days of this presidency. We're going to have a major tax reform, biggest tax reform since Reagan. And it's not just going to be a cut in corporate taxes, but it's also going to be a very large middle-income tax cut that's going to help this country. This is all stuff that makes a conservative's heart, you know, warm. And the thing, you know, all and even the things that I've been worried about, like the spending on infrastructure, which I think can just become a graft pit and not really create as many jobs as they say it's, it's going to, even though we need some infrastructure work. They're talking about bringing this money onshore and privatizing some of this work and, and giving uh, incentives to people to do infrastructure work that's very different than just throwing money at the problem, which is essentially what Democrats do. Plus, Democrats always keep control of anything they throw money at. If they pay for it, they want to run it, and they want to tell people how to hire thing, hire people, and they want to say what the regulations are. And these endless, endless, endless regulations. So, so look, you know, by the way, when we talk about this protectionist thing, the, the trade thing, where we feel that Trump is a little is it's weird that he doesn't like free trade, even though we understand that free trade sometimes costs jobs in one sector and while it creates wealth in other sectors. There are places, there are places where our trade policies have gone wrong in exactly the way that Trump says. You know, I, I'm out here in Hollywood, the special effects business, which 10 years ago was thriving here, is virtually gone. And you know, I don't want to say it's gone to China, you know, China, everything is in <laughs> Trump, China, but it has. And not only has it gone to China, it's gone to England and it's gone to Canada. And the reason it's gone over to those places is because they subsidize the work. The government pays people money so they can charge us less. So all these lefty Hollywood guys go off to Canada, go off to England to do the special effects work and all the work goes away, which, by the way, is illegal, even according to the established rules of the trade, but they just don't enforce it. They don't enforce those things because they're so afraid of starting trouble. Those things can be renegotiated and enforced, and they should be. Here, I, I'm going to have to say goodbye. We're going to have a great conversation about Christmas and God. It's really going to be interesting, but you got to come over to the Daily Wire, now that I remember where I work, the, come over to the Daily Wire to hear it. Uh, and while you're there, subscribe, and you can be part of the mailbag. You can watch me. You can watch Shapiro. It will be great. So here's Daniel Henninger in the Wall Street Journal. Now, Daniel Henninger is like, if there were an establishment, he would be like the king. You know, he's like the most establishment writer out there. You never expect anything radical from him. You never expect anything but kind of establishment conservatism, Wall Street Journal conservatism. And, and he writes this, which I just think is the feeling that's going around and the reason that I'm feeling so jolly. He says, the day before Thanksgiving in New York, I bumped into a Trump advisor who actually knows what is going on inside Trump Tower as opposed to rumors inhabiting the media such as this Tuesday headline, Trump's team phrase over Romney. The message I got was different. 
it's going to be fine, it's going to be just fine. If instead of the individuals he was seeing, the visitors to Trump Tower had been the alt-right activists of so many progressive night sweats, it would have been reported across the New York Times front page and on CNN around the clock. Instead, the Trump transition has been talking to and appointing some of the most accomplished and serious individuals in Republican and conservative politics. Donald Trump isn't pulling rabbits out of a hat. Somebody at Team Trump has a first-rate Rolodex. By now, it should be obvious that the Trump operation exists in two parts. This is what I'm talking about. One half is the operation's face, Donald Trump. The other half is the operation behind the face. Mr. Trump's persona has often made it difficult to take the entire Trump phenomenon seriously. That, we learned, is a mistake. And the thing is, the thing is, look, these appointments, I wouldn't say that Jeb Bush could have made these appointments, but Marco Rubio could have made these, you know, a moderately right-wing Republican guy could have made these appointments. If Trump holds good on his promises about immigration, which is why he's elected, not one of my biggest issues, but a big issue for a lot of people, and I understand that. If he holds true to that, <clears throat> if he does, you know, if it's concern, you know, all, all we can do is win the day. You know, all, we only have one day to be in. It's this day, and all we can do is win the day, and I feel like we are winning the day, and that's why I'm so jolly. And let me just end this part of the show letting Mike Pence talk about what is going on behind the scenes. To, to Hannity, who now seems like a seer, right? Now, Hannity, <laughs> I, I hate to admit it, but he now seems like a seer. We're going to start out of the gate by repealing and replacing Obamacare. We're, we're going we're gonna to take steps uh, to achieve real border security, build a wall, end illegal immigration. You're going to see an appointment at the Supreme Court uh, of a strict constructionist that's, that's uh, going to be in the tradition of the late and great Justice Antonin Scalia. And then before we get to the spring, uh, you're going to see uh, President Donald Trump make good on his uh, pledge to cut taxes across the board for working families, small businesses, family farms, and to, to, to roll back the kind of excessive regulations that are stifling American growth. And, and, and the other issues you mentioned as well. But uh, Energy is, I think, a big job uh, creating unleashing opportunity. Unleashing the power of, of yeah. the American energy economy, ending the war on coal. I mean, I mean it, it really is extraordinary. I think people have been watching this transition, and, and I think they're all already getting a sense uh, of the boundless energy uh, that uh, President-elect Donald Trump is bringing well, into this effort. And I think it's only, you're only going to see that accelerate in the weeks and months ahead. And, and listen, I'm, I'm not big on making predictions longer than two days away because there are too many variables. But if what he said came true, then that's the next president. You know, I mean, this is, this is happy. Listen, if you can't be happy about what's going on now, you don't know what you're fighting. What are we fighting for? You know, this is good stuff. If any of that stuff is true, if half of it is true, we really uh, have, have dodged a bullet and done a good thing. Meanwhile, the Democrats don't have a clue. This is wonderful. I mean, watching the Democrats try, you know, they have this. First of all, they got the delusion, in, the Mr. Delusion in Chief, Mr. Self-Deluded in Chief. He is giving interviews. He gave an interview to Rolling Stone. And he's and and. To give, to give Obama his due, he is not super negative about Trump. He knows that if he's nice to Trump, he'll, get, he'll be able to deal with him a little bit more. So he's kind of trying to be the Trump whisperer. Good luck with that. But still, I, I appreciate his optimism. He says, in this election, white working class voters turned out in huge numbers for Trump. And I think that part of it has to do with our inability, our failure to reach those voters effectively. Listen to this. Part of it is Fox News in every bar and restaurant and big chunks of the country. And it's like nobody – what I love about Obama when he says that, nobody says to him, what bar? <laughs> Which bar were you in that was playing Fox News? But part of it also, he goes on, 
Democrats not working at a grassroots level, being in there, showing up, making arguments, that part of the critique of the Democratic Party is accurate. We spend a lot of time focused on international policy and national policy and less time being on the ground. And when we're on the ground, we do well. But it really is, he always said, he's always talking about the messaging and all this stuff. The policies don't work. The policies don't work. And now they've just, you know, I was joking in the open about they reelected Nancy Pelosi. Play the second cut Pelosi has uh, number four. They have honored me with this leadership role and that speaker uh, in the past, uh, and, and that's exciting. Uh, but today has a special excitement for me uh, because I think we're at a time where it is well beyond politics. It's about the character of America and how we go forward in our caucus uh, to put forth our values, which are what unite us as a caucus, uh, to differentiate between us and the administration that will come into uh, Washington in January. Uh, and to take that message clearly to the public is something that is of uh, historic challenge. The American people see the urgency. We have a responsibility and we embrace the opportunity that is presented. She's absolutely right. It is, it's, see, they keep talking about the economy, and the economy is bad in all these places, and the economy has to work. I mean, one of the things about politics is that no matter what your philosophy is, it has to work. You can't have people starving and say, yes, but you're free. It doesn't work. People don't want to starve. They don't like it. It's not fun, you know. So you, you're, you're, Policies have to work, and Democrat policies don't work. But she's right. Beyond that, there are values, and it's the Democrats' values that people hate. You know, this is what people hate. They hate this stuff. Look, look I think this is one of the most tolerant, non-racist countries on earth. And I'm not dismissing the racism of the past and the way black people were treated in this country. I'm not dismissing it at all. That's over. I mean, that is over. Look around you. I mean, look around you. This is a country that is now a multicultural country and that can— Take that on in ways that European countries can't because we were never based on race. We were never based on race. We were never based on anything but this idea, this creedal notion of being free. And anybody can play. Anybody can play. Do you care if the man who is defending your freedom is a black man? Do you care if the cop who shows up is Asian and helps you and protects you? Of course you don't. Nobody does. I mean, maybe maybe there's 16 guys that the press likes to hunt out and dig up the rocks that they live under, you know, who's spew this alt-right nonsense, this blithering nonsense. But come on. I mean, you live in a you live here. Walk outside. Look around you. You know, talk to the people. They don't care. And so what you have, you have, you know, you saw this thing on BuzzFeed, I'm sure, where BuzzFeed attacked those people. You know, I don't know. They have a show. This is not the kind of stuff. The Gaines. Chip and Joanna Gaines. And they go to a church, a conservative Christian church, and BuzzFeed said, these people go to a church where they preach homosexuality is a sin which is like a church. I mean, and they could have ended with church. It's a church. You know, that's, and we're supposed to now boycott this show because that's their belief system. Nobody's boycotting shows where they think homosexuality is not a sin, where they think it's a net positive. Nobody boycotts those shows. We should boycott BuzzFeed for being fascists, you know? This is the culture that we want to stop, and they, the left cannot hear it. They cannot hear it, which is great, which is great. So speaking of which, speaking of which, I'm on the Rubin Report. Great guy. Dave Rubin really had a good conversation. And we, part of which we talked about God. And he has a very large atheist um, audience, part, part of his audience. And I was just talking about some of my reasons for faith and all this. And I, by the way, I do not believe at all 
in proofs of God. I believe that a proof of God would be anti-God because it would take your freedom away if you could literally prove the existence of God so that nobody could deny it, like you can show that 2 plus 2 equals 2 plus 2 or 2 plus 3 equals 3 plus 2, whatever. You know, you would take people's freedom away, and I think there is this um, notion of faith, and I think you can create a completely materialist, logical view of the world. It simply will not be the world that you and I live in. It won't, you know, it will not resonate with you. And what I love about the atheists is they do exactly the same thing to me that the literalist, Bible literalists do, the fundamentalists who believe there's only one way to see Christianity. One of the things about Christianity, and you can read the greatest uh, apologists on earth, including C.S. Lewis, and he will say there are things that are not explained in Christianity, things we don't know. We don't really know how the death and resurrection of Jesus saves us. We don't really quite know. There are different theories about it, and those theories form different religions. But one of the things that happens to me is I'll make a statement about my belief, and somebody will write in and say, no, no, that's not, that's not it. That's not the way it is. But the atheists do the same thing, and they just throw names at me. Sam Harris. I wrote a review of Sam Harris. You can Google Clavin Harris Claremont Review. It's in the Claremont Review of Books. Uh, you know, his arguments don't impress me. He seems like a nice fellow. He seems a very smart guy, but his arguments don't impress me. Christopher Hitchens, one of my favorite prose writers of my age. Whenever he talked about God, I thought it was ridiculous. So all I get on Twitter is like, have you read Hitchens? Have you read Harris? Haven't you heard about the evolution of morals? And yes, I want to say the same thing to these guys. I, I have heard about those things, and they, don't, they haven't convinced me. It's not that I don't take the argument seriously. They haven't. So a, an article in the Washington Post, of all places, by, of all men, a guy named Howard Smith, a lecturer in Harvard University Department of Astronomy and senior astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just a barefoot teller of tales, right? But this guy is, is a Harvard astrophysicist. As we give thanks, he's writing before Thanksgiving, as we give thanks for our many obvious blessings, let's reflect on a blessing that is less well-known, a gift from modern astronomy, how we view ourselves. There was a time, back when astronomy put Earth at the center of the universe, that we thought we were special. Now, I'm going to stop right here. I'm going to talk about this for a while. We'll go about five minutes over or something like that. Um, there was a time back when astronomy put Earth at the center of the universe that we thought we were special. I just want to remind people, he, he goes on to say, but after Copernicus kicked Earth off its pedestal, we decided we were cosmically inconsequential, partly because the universe is vast and about the same everywhere. I just want to say that this is a myth. The Catholic Church believed the Earth was at the center of the solar system because that was the bottom. They thought the Earth was the least important thing. They thought human beings were so sinful and disgusting that they couldn't be, you know, higher than that. Uh, they, they, thought the, they thought the earth was at the center because that was the bottom of their structure, right? They didn't, that wasn't making us special. That was making us unimportant. It was making us dirty. We were low down. And one of the things they didn't like about Copernicus, although they didn't, you know, the whole story of Galileo is much more complex than people think, but the whole thing was they, they didn't think that people could be that important, that they would be up on top in their view of the way the world worked, okay? So astronomer Carl Sagan put it this way, we find that we live in, on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star, and Stephen Hawking was even blunter. He said the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet. 
Our guy goes on to say, an objective look, however, at just two of the most dramatic discoveries of astronomy, Big Bang, cosmology, and planets around other stars, exoplanets, suggests the opposite. We seem to be cosmically special, perhaps even unique, at least as far as we are likely to know for eons. Again, let me just stop there and remind you, which you may not know, that uh, the Big Bang theory was invented by a Catholic priest, uh, was discovered by a Catholic priest. And it would be simplistic to say that he did it because he wanted... He wanted science to be more in keeping with the Bible, uh, but he did feel that his faith and science operated perfectly well together. And he was a very, very sophisticated theological thinker. I'm not going to go into his thoughts now, but he was a very sophisticated theological thinker who had absolutely no problem with science at all and felt that science and faith worked together perfectly. Now, this article starts to talk about the anthropic principle. This is really important. The anthropic principle has been accepted by physicists for 43 years. The universe, far from being a collection of random accidents, appears to be stupendously perfect and fine-tuned for life. The strengths of the four forces that operate in the universe, gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak nuclear interactions, have values critically suited for life, and were they even a few percent different, we would not be here. The most extreme example is the Big Bang creation. Even an infinitesimal change in its explosive expansion value would preclude life. The frequent response from physicists offers a speculative solution, an infinite number of universes we are just living in the one with the right value. But modern philosophers such as Thomas Nagel and pioneering quantum physicists such as John Wheeler have argued instead that intelligent beings must somehow be the directed goal of such a curiously fine-tuned cosmos. The world looks like it was made to create minds that can understand it. That is just the simple fact. The odds of that happening, as I have heard it said many times, are like a wind blowing through a junkyard and assembling a 747. That is the odds against us being here and being who we are. And so they have speculated, I don't want to call it a theory, but they have speculated that there must be an infinite number of universes in which this just happens to be the one that looks like God made it. <laughs> it just happens to be the one. But that is pure fantasy. It's pure speculation. They are saying, this is what we think we'll discover, but there's never in these theories, there's never any communication between the universes, so there's no way we could ever possibly know. So they're inventing a fairy tale to get out of just like Freud did, he invented a fairy tale to get out of the story of original sin. They're inventing a fairy tale to get out of the existence of a creator God. Now, let me tell you what my problem with this is, okay? All these scientists, all these materialists, all these physicalists, we'll call them, people who think everything is physical, they want you to believe that your decisions are a series of electronic and chemical reactions. And I've said this before, but they even injected it into our language. We'll say, well, man, that was an adrenaline rush. As if, you know, you were surfing and it was the adrenaline being pumped through your body that made you feel excited, right? But it's your excitement that makes the adrenaline pump through your body so you can feel it. It's your spiritual excitement that makes the adrenaline pump through your body so you can feel, and we know this. We, I mean, we feel it. We experience it. We know we make choices. They always talk about the the fact that the, we're all at the mercy of our genes. Our genes just want to recreate, and that's all we're doing. It, it, that explains nothing. It explains not people who just say, you know, I don't want to have kids because they're too expensive. You know, it's like where's their gene? Their genes are going. No, no, please, we're one Africans. Yeah, it's too expensive. You know, <laughs> it's like they don't. This explains nothing. Your experience of life is an experience of choice. It's an experience of excitement. It's an experience of love, of of passion, and all these things. The 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 most 
The most fitting explanation, as I said, there are no proofs of this, but the most fitting explanation is that the human body is a language in which the spirit speaks. The human body speaks badly, bluntly, what your spirit is feeling. And one of the problems we have is the translation is not that good. You know, the, the spirit is so big and the human body so small that the body translates love into lust. And so you think that lust is more important because the body is so here, it's so real and there, where the spirit is just yearning for love and for connection and for recreation, to exercise its, its creative, uh, the creative nature that it gets from God. So if you wanted to tell a story about how flesh is a language, about flesh being a language for the spirit, you might tell a story in which God turns his the logic of his mind into a human being. And in that story, you might find that those uh, structures that we've created, the political structures, the religious structures, the structure of mob thought, of democracy, does everything it can to silence that word, to silence that flesh by killing the flesh, and yet every time they kill it, it comes back to life. And what I'm saying to you is if Christianity were only a story, if Christianity were only a story, it would still be a true story. It would still be a story that describes your life as you live it, as you experience it. Not as they're telling you, oh, it, it has to be this way because of my logic. It would describe your life as you live it. The fact that we have every indication that it's also an historical event, I don't know, seems like a clue to me that something, somebody is telling us something in the, in the history of our world. And that is why when you tell me, oh, you're not listening to Sam Harris and you're not listening, I, I do listen to them. I read them all. I really do. And, I, and I, love, I love the fact that they can come out and argue their position. I don't, think, I don't think they shouldn't be allowed to argue their position. I think their position does not describe life as I experience it and as you experience it. And that is why for the next 25 days we are going to be celebrating the birth of Jesus, the word of God made flesh. And we will end with one of my favorite pieces of music, which is Bach. Uh, it's usually called Jesu Joy of Man's Desire, and you'll recognize it right away. But this is Celtic woman, this violin and choral group who managed to turn this 17th century piece of German music into an Irish folk song. I don't know how they do it, but it is, it is quite beautiful. Listen, we'll be back. I'm, I'm going to New York for the weekend, so I'll be broadcasting from New York on Monday, and I'll see what's going on there. It can't be good. But uh, I, I will be here. Have a good Clavenless weekend. Who knows? Maybe even the nature of the Clavenless weekend will change into a positive. Last weekend we killed Castro. Who knows who we're coming after today? All right, I'll see you on Monday. It's great to be here. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.